You're listening to the Good Moon Clinic podcast with Drs. Justine Corrie and Gemma Gladstone. We're two clinical psychologists and schema therapists with a passion for helping people get to the heart of the matter, to find out what's really going on and to help break unhelpful life patterns. In this podcast, we'll take an in-depth look at the common issues our clients bring to therapy and hope to offer you some useful new ways to think about your life and the people in it. So stay with us. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Good Mood Clinic podcast. My name is Gemma Gladstone and I'm here with my lovely colleague, Justine Corey. How are you, Justine? I'm really well, Gem, and it is good to be back talking to everyone again. We've actually had a bit of a hiatus, haven't we? Where life life has got in the way. It's in the way sometimes, doesn't it, Justine? It just totally gets in the way and it just keeps enjoying your tea there, Gem. Yes, oh, it's better. I just needed to get that nice morning cup up. We've had a hiatus because, yeah, life gets in the way for both of us. We've had some ups and downs, haven't we? Yeah, we have actually. We've had quite a bit going on. Just sort of sometimes things land in your lap and you can't do what you'd normally do. Actually, it's probably an episode on that, isn't there, Gem? Yeah, there is. But, I mean, what are we going to talk about today? We thought that we've, it's, uh, we thought we've had some really interesting conversations together and also with our clients lately. And so we thought we'd talk about some little odd kind of psychological, not so much disorders. Yeah. Anything, any of those oral noises, nesting kind of noises really get my goat. The celery, it doesn't even have to be celery. Sometimes I have to ask him to sit in a whole other room while we're eating. Right. So what's this called, Gem? This is actually a thing and it's called misophonia. Misophonia. And I suppose like anything else, it's on a bit of a a spectrum of severity. I don't think I have the most severe level of it, but I definitely have an element of it. I'll just tell you what it is because I've had a couple of clients over the years talk about it as well. Misophonia, have you, Justine? You know what? I've, aside from you, no. I've never, I never heard of it. This mm. is we were, we were having a bit of a laugh about it, weren't we? Mm. Mm. Trying to deconstruct it. I'm just going to tell you what it is. It's a condition where people experience a negative emotional reaction and dislike maybe anxiety, agitation and annoyance or actually downright rage where they want to rip someone's head off to specific sounds. It could be even like. Oh, right, tapping. Tapping. All right. Or you know when someone has a ballpoint pen and they're flicking it up and down and up and down and up and down, that kind of, you know, or they're taking the lid off. And they're putting the lid back on. Right. So it's not just chewing or anything. It's actually It's not broader... just chewing, but it's often it's if it's often kind of oral sort of right. sounds. And people are often affected only by the people they're really close to. Right. Interestingly enough. Or how however, for some people can be really, really severe. It's a dislike to specific sounds. Pen clicking, tapping, typing, chewing, even breathing. Although I don't have a problem with my husband breathing. It's fine. That That'd be breathes. a problem if you did. <laughs> swallowing, 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 and other people who I, I love too. You know, I, I find it hard sometimes to sit next to someone 
who has a cup of tea and depending on the way they drink the oh. tea, I think it's because when I was young, my father used to drink his tea like this. Oh, right. Uh, like, Absolutely yeah. hated it. <laughs> like it, it intrudes into your awareness. And not only hate it, but now when it happens, and again, it's it's quite specific. It's not like everybody and it's not like everything. But certainly if I'm sitting close to my husband and we're eating, not at a restaurant, it, like it doesn't work. We're going out to dinner, aren't we, tonight? We are. Look, I promise it's not going to be a thing there. <laughs> Because there's background I'll noise. I tell everyone to eat quietly. Um, it's background noise and I don't know, but I, I also get conscious with me. Remember I've been in a working meeting with you and I've been eating my lunch and I've asked oh, you, does yes. this bother you? Yes, I'm like, no. Nah. And you said, no, why would it? Like, you know, but it would bother me sometimes. It's not a huge thing and it's not when you're at a big dinner table and there's background noise, but if you're sitting close to someone and they're eating. Anyway, sufferers of this condition have it most with the people that are closest to them. I wonder what that's about. Because now you say it, like, I don't have it with my current partner, but with my ex-partner, I had it with his tea drinking. Like, it would just really annoy me. But he was sort of a slurper. Yeah, slurpers are the worst. And, yeah, yeah. and it was just like, you know, like really sort of disgusted mm. at the same time. You felt disgust. Disgusted. It's like the, the emotion is often disgust. Right. Um, the emotion okay. is irritation, agitation, disgust. So this is, it involves a hypersensitivity to sound causing within us, it's related to the fight or flight response. Like I said, you can have it and, and it can, and it can, it, you can feel anxiety, rage, and even panic upon hearing these sounds. And for some people, it can lead to avoidance behaviors. Like, for example, well, I won't go and eat with anybody because I can't bear how that sounds. It can be a real affliction and thing for some people. I have not had that experience where it's got into affected how I live my life really. But I remember when I first mentioned it to Paul, it was like, oh, you know, do you have to eat so loud? And he thought that was a really odd thing to say, but he's now become a bit of a customer to it, so it accommodates a little bit. But I can imagine if you had it significantly, it would get in the way of relationships. Well, I'm just thinking it would because what if that was completely intolerable or you had it with breathing or – and why is it – is there any – anyone said why it tends to be with people close to you? Like I wonder what that's about. There's some research. So basically research into misophonia is still very relatively new. So it was only really started to be investigated in the 90s, I think. They're not entirely sure, but it, it could be – in terms of a learning sensitivity, so like a conditioned response. So, for example, it, it, it tends to come on pre-puberty, it tends to come on in childhood. Mm. So you know, there might be something going on and then that might be that, that might be negative and emotionally arousing or a difficult thing and then that's associated with these sounds. It could be that and or there might be some sort of other sensory neural underpinnings for it. Oh, yeah, I can imagine yeah. that. Yeah. So, you for know, example, yeah. like mine was just specific to this particular person with this in this particular situation, tea drinking. Would my version of it be different to yours? Do you know what I mean? So, if yours is more intense, or would it just be the same underlying? Because that's what about him. If it was more about him, see, if, if the sort of annoyance in him came before 
the trigger sound. Yes. Perhaps it's more about him. Yes, I think For so. For me, I can be sitting there happily. We might say, oh, let's eat something, you know, and watch a show tonight. Like we mm. might sort of eat, sit down, bad habit of eating TV and uh, eating in front of the TV <laughs> and so then we'll start eating and then it might be something chewy because Paul went through a, a phase where he loves celery a lot. He would eat a lot of that and that I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't. And, and then sometimes, you know, you'd be at the movies with someone oh. and they might be flicking that packet of chips or they might be unwrapping that lolly and, you know, it take, it's taking them forever to unwrap. Yeah. And you think, just unwrap it already. Why is, is that because they're trying you? to be quiet? <laughs> but it's so annoying. Like, why is it taking you so, yeah. so long? Right. To, yeah, to, to actually do it. You know, it's all, all those trigger sounds um, vary among people with misophonia. They can change over time. And like I said, the most common triggers are sounds that come from people's mouth, like chomping, slurping, swallowing, yeah. throat clearing. Lip smacking. I remember, we know, we know how before we were talking about dating. I was on a date and, and a, a date with this guy, and he was doing this weird lip smacking thing, and I, I couldn't get out of there quick enough. I mean, it wouldn't have mattered like what he looked like or what we had in common. It was just a bit irritating. It was just too irritating, you know. And that the emotion is kind of disgust. It's real fight or flight sort of yeah. mechanism going on there. Yeah, right. And they've done these studies where they've tested these people who have identified of misophonia and they've compared other sounds like, for example, other universally difficult sounds like a baby crying or neutral sounds or people screaming or, you know, different sounds. And they've, they've found that people with misophonia don't have any problem with those sorts of sounds. They don't have this high, even visceral reaction or high intense emotions to those sort of sounds. It's very specific to this, this sort of set. Less common triggers are sniffling, writing, paper rustling, ticking clocks, all of those kinds of things. But I've only ever encountered it with the uh, the chewing type of sounds. Right. I can so, imagine if it was bad, you would, yeah, it would really have a big impact on you if you were really, you know, if your threshold for having that disgust and irritation yeah. was quite low. Mm. A while ago I had a client who reported having this and, she was avoiding going to dinners where her uh, father was present because she couldn't sit at the same table as him while he was eating. So there's often correlates with um, sometimes with the learning of misophonia, you know, if you have a difficult relationship with that person, you know, and then there's an annoying or a pronounced sound. So that's the associative learning aspect of it. And is that like your attachment I don't know. System or something <laughs> like it because it was just with people close <clears throat> to you. Anyway, it's very interesting. It is very, very interesting. And and, very you know, idiosyncratic. I'm, I'm not an episode, uh, sorry, an, an expert on, on the topic at all, but you know, it's a really interesting, it's a topic and it is a thing if you have it. Try not to be ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. And treatment would involve things like exposure therapy and stuff like that, all that. Mm. Desensitization, things, cognitive behavior therapy, things like that. And of course, if it's not a huge deal and it doesn't affect your life, then there's okay. You it's wouldn't okay. need to. So that's misophonia. Misophonia. So the next one we came up with. The next one is um, interesting. There's a bit of a theme emerging here because I also have this one as well. Perhaps I've been drawn to that. So really I just have these two odd things that I was really interested in mm-hmm. um, and I didn't know there were things. So the misophonia, low level I suppose I have it, didn't know it was a thing until about 
maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then previous to that, I heard that client talking about it. So and then I've since had another one. So not very common, but, um, you know, I only heard of it very recently. The second thing is really, really interesting. Do you ever get this, Justine? You could be sitting there and you could be watching a film and all of a sudden someone in the film gets hurt. Like, mm. I don't know, like um, they could be shot in the arm or they could fall over and break a leg or, you know, they could they could stub their toe. Do you ever feel a corresponding sensation in in your body? No, no, it wouldn't be like a sense, it would be like a kind of a, oh, a cringe, like, oh, that would hurt, but not actually yeah. a sensation that would correspond to that, not, their particular injury. Not actually no. a sensation. This is the second thing right. that I have a little <laughs> bit of, and it's called mirror touch synthesia. Mirror and touch synthesia, okay. Synthesia. Do you remember that movie, Castaway? Where Tom Hanks yes, loves that movie. Tom Hanks goes down in the in the plane and he's on this island and he's trying to get off the island. He has several attempts of getting off the island by making his own, you know, yes, raft. raft. And he goes over the, you know, the wave and he has this terrible accident when he falls in and he scrapes the in, his legs with the coral. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in the cinema, and this is a familiar experience for me that only occurs with my legs. Nothing else. Only your legs. Only my legs. So not fingers or hands not really. or anything. No. Wow. No. So he falls down on the coral and I'm watching and I cannot bear <laughs> it because in my legs I get a hor- not as bad as what that would actually feel like if you ripped your leg open with coral, but I feel a terrible, painful, sensory sensation in my legs. Wow. And so much so that I automatically move my hand down to my thigh on my leg and and, and rub it. Like it's really (laughs) sore. Like it's, yeah, just to sort of give it an alternate sensation to take Mm -hmm. away that other sensation. Wow. Now, I've had this a number of times, particularly in movies or if people in real life, but I guess movies are more, you know, you're more absorbed in the film Mm -hmm. as you're watching it, particularly in the cinema. So absorption, if you're completely absorbed in an experience and you're more likely Mm. to kind of feel this sort of thing. I've had that my whole life (laughs) and I didn't know what it was. Not disabling because it's not it's not like you're watching this stuff all the time. And once I said to somebody, isn't it terrible when you get that feeling? And they turned to me and said, what, do you, what, 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 what feeling? What are you talking about? I said, well, you know, the, get the feeling in your leg, you know, like with the coral and all that. And they said, no, I have never had that feeling. We're talking about a version of mirror touch synthesia, and it's found in approximately up to 2.5% of the population. Who knows? Maybe more of the general population. Common. Yeah, so it's not, and people have variations of it, mm-hmm. and obviously they could have distressing variations or sort of more low level. People who have this issue have higher levels of effective and pain empathy than those without the condition. It's related to some degree to mm-hmm. the pain centres of the body and how much we perceive and detect pain. There's the same regions of the ba- of the brain that are responsible for or physical pain perception are actually very similar and very close to emotional pain perception. The, the people that have this, their emotional experience of the observed, so sometimes it's just touch. So people who have it very strongly could be sitting opposite someone and someone would scratch their chin 
or yeah. their, their, yeah. their cheek and say, oh, I've mm-hmm. got a, an itch here. And the other person who has pronounced mirror touch synthesia would actually feel that scratch on their own chin. So they're really feeling it. Wow. Not just I feel your pain sort of so metaphorically. I'm feeling it. But I'm actually literally feeling it. Wow. So their emotional experience of the observed touch may differ from the emotional experience of the person being mm-hmm. touched, right? So it's not necessary, but it's that they're actually feeling the visceral sensation. It's kind of, uh, and it's certainly another thing that is a bit of a, a bit of a thing. And then how long does it take for the sensation to go away? So when you're watching Tom yeah. Hanks. I also had it in Moana. For? You know how Moana, the kids yeah. show Moana, you know, oh, just does it as well? Right. He's on the raft. Yes. Right, even, so even cartoons. Yeah, yeah, even cartoons. Well, it's a pretty high-spec cartoon, but, yeah. you know, the I don't know if it would happen in an old Tom and Jerry-type cartoon. But, you know. That so it's, it's the realism, not the fact that it's a real person necessarily. Yeah, it's the realism of it. Yeah. I mean, either that or in a past life I was actually someone on an island strand and made a raft and hurt my leg. But <laughs> injured by coral, very specific. You know, very specific past life coral injury, but it's probably along the lines of this um, mirror touch synthesia. So mm. it'd be really interesting to see how many other people have this stuff. There's obviously a lot of research left to be done in this area that hasn't been done. So I think some of the research that's been done on it surrounding this phenomenon uh, is focused on the concept that people with this condition may be more empathic than those who don't have the condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's the been yeah. what its evolutionary purpose would be. Yeah, you know, like- exactly. Evolution gone a little bit haywire. Huh? Yeah. So in a study published in the journal Cognitive Neuropsychology, people with yeah. neurotouch synthesia were shown a picture of a person's face and were actually better able, so people with the condition mm. were shown just pictures of people's faces and were better able to recognise their specific emotions that All they right, were experiencing okay. or the nuances of mm-hmm. emotions compared with people without the condition of right. neurotouch synthesia. So it's linked in some ways, but I think there was another study that showed that it, the result was a little bit mixed. So yeah. um, researchers theorised that people with mirror touch synthesia have enhanced sensations of social and cognitive recognition compared with others. There is a little bit going on there in that pathway. And I know like as, um, and you do, you do too, like as a therapist and, um, you know, I was speaking to a lot of other colleagues you know, sometimes when you're when you're with someone and you're listening to them tell you a really difficult story or mm-hmm. past history or they're recounting something really stressful, you can notice sometimes that I have a bit of like what's called somatic empathy. You know, you can feel that you can feel the emotions going on in your own body. Mm. Mm. So I think empathy has so many different types of pathways to it and it's not necessarily a good thing for our own mental health. Oh, no, because if you're feeling it, you're feeling yeah. it. If you're, you know, feeling it's a load. If, yeah. if you're feeling it, you're feeling it, and it's a load. So it's actually a stressor. So we don't want to feel that too much. Having said that, the mirror touch synthesia is, I think I experience a component of it. But like I said, mine's really specific to the lower half of my body, to the and legs. potentially to coral injuries. Wow. Yeah. Hello, hello. 
I'm Dr. Gemma Gladstone, clinical psychologist and certified schema therapist, supervisor and trainer. You know, both Justine Corey and I have worked with hundreds of women over the years who have come to therapy with a particular kind of dilemma. Their issue has been that they've found themselves repeating a certain pattern, a pattern of getting involved into romantic relationships with emotionally unavailable or narcissistic partners. So in response to this particular client issue, we developed an online course called The Red Flag Project. It's a short, affordable course, which we developed to help these women break this unhelpful pattern and to make smarter, healthier, better choices. So check out our website, goodmood.com.au for more information and we'll keep you posted. Now let's get back to the episode. So when I was researching the other day on this, Justine, I got onto the search engine and I thought, okay, let's type in like strange psychological phenomenal or weird psychological syndromes. And lo and behold, another syndrome came up that I related to. And I thought, wow, okay, this is a bit scary. <laughs> Do you want me to read you what this yeah, one is? Yeah, what is it? Which, what one's that? Alice in Wonderland syndrome. I love Mm. Alice in Wonderland. Yes. Alice in Wonderland syndrome describes a set of symptoms with alteration of body image. An alteration of visual perception is found in the way that sizes of parts of the body or the body Mm -hmm. change. So we we can feel that we're becoming really big or we can feel that we're becoming really small. And the most common perceptions are at night, sometimes when you're falling asleep. The causes of this condition are not known. Again, it lies on a spectrum. But interestingly, it's been found to be associated with the development of vestibular migraines. Really? Temporal load epilepsy, brain tumours or psychoactive drugs or Epstein-Barr syndrome, which is glandular fever. So it's... um. The treatment for this, when people have it really severely, the treatment plan consists of migraine prophylaxis and a migraine diet, and there's been known to be chronic cases exist. So I had this experience when I was young and very infrequently as an adult. And sometimes, you know, you'd just be lying there going to sleep or you'd wake up in the morning or you'd just be resting with your eyes closed predominantly. And I would feel that my body would take up most of the space of the room that I was in. Mm. And it would be a uh-huh. bit disconcerting. It's like I've sort of grown. Right? And that's like the Alice in Wonderland reference when she yeah. says, eat this and she gets really big and, yeah, right. That's the Alice in Wonderland yeah. reference. You know, I had that and I remember thinking, wow, this is really, this is really kind of odd. So this guy uh, in 1955, English psychiatrist John Todd defined the Alice in Wonderland syndrome as self-experienced sort of um, perceptual changes in body image involving distortions of size, mass or shape or position, sometimes accompanied by an experience of depersonalization or derealization. So changes in the perception of how real you are or how much you feel connected to your body. That's so interesting. Like I've never experienced that myself. 
like mm. I haven't had, but just thinking about it, I've actually had clients who've experienced in sessions, right? So right. in schema therapy, we do imagery mm. scripting, which basically gets people to close their eyes and we explore difficult memories as a way of healing their inner child or their vulnerable child um, if they've had difficult childhood experiences. And then usually at that point when they're probably feeling some of the feelings they used to feel when they were younger, some of them spontaneously report saying something like, wow, my arms feel really big compared mm. to the rest of my body mm. or the room's shrinking and I'm feeling really big or mm. one, one, one guy, his, his legs felt really big. And mm-hmm. I never really, look, I always meant to look it up, never got around to it, to be honest. But I remember sort of seeing it as a sign that actually we've hit on something quite profound for the person because it always mm. happened when they were actually feeling, you know, quite emotional. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I think I've had one or two t- people talk about yeah. that too with, with, with imagery. You know, I know and I, what that's about. Yeah. No, I don't know why it would be associated with emotional material or whether it's just some people are prone to do that Why that while they've got their eyes closed. You know, some people are prone to be interesting to see whether they've ever had those experiences before. Yeah, I'll have to ask them now because I was thinking the migraine, right, maybe because, you know, obviously stressful emotional experiences can bring on migraine. Like that would be mm. a really common trigger so is something happening in them that would be along those lines maybe because you know they're usually feeling quite emotional at that point in the session I don't know interesting Mm. around it now and see if I can find any patterns because yeah it's it's happened I don't know like I would say I've I've had about 15 different people over my career yeah Yeah, I kind of like I know I I had it a handful of times as a kid and it didn't really like I said it wasn't super distressing or anything Mm. Unusual, and you could always get out of it just by opening your eyes and grounding yourself, gaining perspective of yeah, yeah, you know, how big you actually were in the room. But yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it's always in these clients, and obviously because of what they're experiencing at the time, obviously it's experienced as not being good, like mm. not, not nice. You know, mm-hmm. they're finding it like not to the point where they want to get out of the session or anything like that. But they're like they they talk about it as if it's um, it's unpleasant. Yes. Wow, interesting. Well, that yeah. actually, that's really helpful, Jim. Now I can think about those situations in a different way. Yeah. Wow. So that's that's the third one, and then you mm. had you had one too that you I did. So this is actually something that my eldest daughter experiences. And I remember I, I didn't think much of it actually, Jim, until you were saying, you know, can you do you identify with anything sort of unusual or strange? And I thought, well, actually, I don't, but my eldest daughter does. So. Do you remember, um, you know how kids, for example, when you get something on online shopping that gets delivered and sometimes it's in those plastic bubble wraps? Oh, yeah. speaking, love popping the bubbles. Like yes. they'll, you know, go, oh, oh, can I have that? And they want to pop all the bubbles. Well, she always sort of had an aversion to that, which I kind of found sort of odd. And this is from when she was little, right? But obviously when she's little, she can't actually articulate that. But I thought, okay, that's interesting, but didn't think too much of it. It was just different to the other kids. And then one day she came home from school and she goes, Mum, you know how I've got that thing about sort of patterns and sort of um, holes and things, right? So what she's describing is that when she looks at something that is sort of got lots of dots close together, so the bubble Mm -hmm. wrap, for example, or even if she saw like a dot painting, Mm-hmm. Or I showed her a picture of a lotus flower just to, 
you know, when I was researching this to see if that would elicit the same response and it did. So it's sort of like lots of holes clustered together. She gets a very intense disgust response and anxiety mm. and she just wants to not look at it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, trypophobia. Oh, okay. P-R-Y-P-O-phobia. And it's kind of a pair of holes. <laughs> pair I've, of never, holes. <laughs> I've never heard of that. And another thing that she dislikes, you know, how you get those chocolate aero bars. Oh. And they've got the little holes in them. Yes. She cannot tolerate that. Wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um, when I was doing a bit of research, you know, for our conversation, it's actually really interesting why they think it's there. So it's because um, from an evolutionary perspective, being hypervigilant to threat obviously increases survival. And some poisonous snakes, for example, have their skin Mm. It's got that sort of look. Yes. So lots of things close together and also things like octopuses and even they were saying sometimes spiders or, you know, like sort of poisonous insects Mm. can have those types of patterns. Right, right. Yeah. And also another hypothesis is that it's an aversion to skin conditions because, you know, how we get rashes. Well, that also has the same look, so they're thinking maybe it's... To draw attention the fact that this is something wrong. Yeah. Well, and to avoid it. I don't want to catch Uh, that with someone else. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I can kind of relate to that, can you? Yeah. Your skin rash, you go, ooh, that looks, you know, and you might have a Mm. thought, was that contagious? But obviously Mm. their aversion to it is much higher. Mm. But, yeah, so it's it's basically a sort of an overexcited sort of survival mechanism, I think. Mm -hmm. But get this, right? So I would have thought that would be quite unusual in the population. Yes. Yes. You'd think so. You'd think so. 16%. Really? Yeah. Really common. That is is quite common. It's really common, Mm. isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But I've never heard of it before. No, I've never heard of that before. No. No, and there must be quite a lot of these kinds of things. Yeah. They're a little bit unusual, but they may not at all interfere with your life or activities at all, but they may for some people. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I mean, she doesn't, she just avoids certain things. We actually were on the train once and we were going past a building and the building had sort of a, like some pattern, like the cladding had a pattern Mm -hmm. of dots on it. Mm. She's like, oh my god, I just cannot look at that. <laughs> she had to close her oh. eyes and look away. And I was seeing that, you know. And, and for me, I was looking at it, it was like a completely neutral, yes, thing. Like, yeah, actually, yeah, it's a series of dots on some planting. Anyway, I just thought it's fascinating. But I just remember she was sort of relieved. I think when she came home that she could name it. That's yeah. right. Well, you know, that helps to name it, it does. doesn't it? Yeah. it? Makes you feel like you're not strange or yes. actually a thing, and other yeah. people have it. Well, that's all we've got for, I know there must be oodles of them, but that's all we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I think so. That was fun. Yeah. Bit of fun to be curious about these things, isn't it? Absolutely. Psychology is full of them. Yeah. If you want to get in touch, of course, at all, please contact us on Justine and Gemma at goodmood.com.au to nominate a a question or a topic for discussion on anything. We're going to be moving back into the area of relationships. Yes, we are. Yep. We're going to look at sort of the how to cope with breakups and look at that, I suppose, from a schema perspective. Yes. How you might 
sort of cope better with those feelings that come up, particularly if you've got an abandonment schema. Particularly. Because it's yeah. really, really tough. So we're going to do a series on that. And if you have an abandonment schema or a fear of abandonment and you have a pattern of getting involved with um, emotionally unavailable partners, you want to go and, and check out our Red Flag Project online course, which is uh, you can find on our the learning hub of our website at goodmood.com.au. And that's about a four-hour four or so online course full of good content and handy hints and uh, a dating plan even in there and just talks you through why you might be experiencing some of these things and the patterns that you might be in. That's right. People have found it really helpful just to get their head around how their schemas or particularly their abandonment schema is impacting how they're approaching dating Mm. and the feedback we've had has been really great on how Mm. helpful it's been. So if you're curious about that and want to know more, as Gemma said, just go to our website. Good. Good. Been fun chatting with you again today on this topic, Justine. Yeah. And I will, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Okay. Bye, Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Well, that's it for today. We really enjoyed spending time with you and we hope that you keep listening. You can visit the podcast page on our website, goodmood.com.au, for more information and to access show notes. Please remember that this podcast is intended for information and learning purposes and that it shouldn't be used as a substitute for personal therapy. So please consult a qualified mental health professional for assistance that is tailored to your specific needs. Hope you stay well and take great care of yourself. Bye for now.